Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Today, with all these questions about Mitch McConnell's health, is he capable of leading the Senate Republicans? Well, he's sure going to try. And Mitch McConnell is a man of the Senate. He, Brian, is one of these rare uh, modern American senators who never had an appetite to run for president. He always looked in the mirror and saw a future Senate leader, not a future commander in chief. And so it is uh, extraordinarily difficult for somebody like that to walk away from the pinnacle uh, of their career in public life. And uh, that's a long way of saying, unless he's forced out by his Republican colleagues, I don't see it. And there's no sign of that right now. All right, that's Jonathan Martin, senior political columnist and politics bureau chief for Politico. He's also a resident fellow this semester at Harvard's Institute of Politics. He's coming to us today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Brian Stelter. And let me welcome you to Vanity Fair's Inside the Hive. This week... We're going inside the gerontocracy, talking about, yes, Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, his age, his health issues, him recently freezing up repeatedly on camera in a very scary way. But the story of Mitch McConnell, as Jonathan just said, is about so much more than that. Um, What is the GOP in the age of Donald Trump? Why is McConnell one of the only leaders willing to stand up to Trump on the right? So, Let's get into all of that. Jonathan, starting on these these freeze-ups, or I don't know, is that the right way to call them? What's the best way to describe what happened with him twice this summer? Brian, I think that probably is the best uh, layman's term, at least, to use. And that's the language I've actually used in print as well. Um, you know, he has uh, issued a statement uh, from the congressional physician indicating that these were not seizures, which obviously has been the speculation from folks on the outside. But no question, these were scary moments for McConnell personally, and they were jarring, I think, for members of Congress more broadly. McConnell is such a fixture uh, in the Senate, but also in part because we're living through this moment where so many of our uh, leaders in public life are over 70. Uh, It is a gerontocracy in many respects today, Brian. Parties are fretting about elderly leaders. It's happening in both parties. Uh, you know, last week's episode here was with Jennifer Palmieri and, and Chris Smith talking about Joe Biden and yeah. what would happen if, if suddenly Biden can't run for re-election right. and he has to, to take off to the sidelines. There's a similar question clearly in the GOP. Donald Trump, no no spring chicken. Uh, Mitch McConnell, just to be clear, 81 years old. Right. And you wrote for Political over the summer that he is showing his age. So tell us about what you observed up close with McConnell. Well, I wrote a piece for Politico over the summer uh, based on travels uh, in Europe, uh, extensive interviews in Washington, and uh, traveling in Kentucky to see McConnell. And what I was writing about, Brian, was what is really McConnell's last big public fight, which is the effort to keep the Republican Party away from the temptation of isolationism and away from kind of what he views as the most virulent strain of Trumpism. Mm -hmm. Uh, And 
uh, that that uh, in this moment, at least, takes its form in his advocacy for continuing to defend the Ukrainians uh, and confront Russia, which has become a less popular stance in his party. But that really is McConnell's mission at this point. This is sort of his his final battle. And I thought that was an interesting uh, thread, in part because uh, you know McConnell has been criticized, I think justifiably, for not doing more to confront Trump and Trumpism when Trump was actually president. But I think it's also much more poignant now, given McConnell's health challenges, because you know we talk about these politicians being in the winter of their careers, but boy, never has that been brought home than it has with, with McConnell th- these last few weeks. Right. So let's talk about that in a little more detail. You wrote, quote, plagued by worsening hearing loss, the after effects of his March fall at the former Trump Hotel and the lingering impact of his childhood bout with polio. He's he's suddenly looking and sounding every bit his age of 81. So um, let's talk about that March fall. You say it was an accident of history. Well, I just thought it was an accident of history that it took place in the former Trump Hotel in Washington. I mean, you, you know, here's somebody, Mitch McConnell, who can't stand Donald Trump, and he has this devastating fall and concussion uh, in what was the, the the Trump Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. It just it felt mm. like a footnote uh, for the history books, Brian. Uh, so I thought that was striking. But yeah, look, look, McConnell is suffering from this convergence of health challenges that that make his condition look pretty uh, pretty difficult. Uh, now McConnell insists that it looks worse than it actually is. I can sort of do my job, mm. but when you combine his really profound hearing loss, the childhood polio issues sort of rearing their head, and this concussion that he had from the fall, a fall that he had in part because of the polio issues. It's a really sort of toxic uh, combination for McConnell's um, you know, public presentation. And I think he knows that. He's very sensitive about it. And um, Oh, what do you mean? Well, he has been around the Senate, Brian, long enough. And I've talked to him about this over the years to know that there have been a lot of storied lawmakers who stay too long and who are known in part for what they were at the end of their careers. Bad right. cops. Strom Thurmond, Robert Byrd, uh, just to name three, uh, who refused to resign in the face of increasing frailty. I am, McConnell didn't want to be in that category. McConnell is a man of history. He thinks about his legacy. He opened a Senate institution in his own name to house his archives the year after his first re-election to the Senate. <laughs> And so McConnell does oral histories at the end of every year for that institute. And so McConnell wants to be recalled in his future obituary, Brian, for his legacy as the longest serving Senate leader in American history, not as somebody who was sort of one more sad old man being wheeled around the Capitol and sort of scarcely what he was in his prime. I don't think I've ever told you this, but I was a page in the Senate in like 2002 hmm. um, and ever for one summer. And I remember very vividly us making bad jokes among, you know, among the pages. We would talk about the senators who clearly had stayed too long. Uh, and so, it, you know, it is striking to hear you say that McConnell's self-aware about that concern. He saw it happen to his former colleagues. Yes. At the same time, you wrote again in August for Politico, you said it's jarring to see him declining the way yes. he is. Yeah, I've covered McConnell for, you know, quite a long time. And 
I know what he was, and I, I've seen what he is today. And obviously, the, there there has been a real decline, and to see that take place, it's sort of hard to detach that from I think what is gonna be the final assessment of McConnell. And mm. again, this is precisely what he wanted to avoid. He did not uh, want to be seen in that light. He has talked to former staffers about going out on top, invoking Brian NFL quarterbacks who left the league before the end of their prime. People like Peyton Manning, he's he's mentioned that. But huh. it, it is damn hard, though, for a politician to walk away. And it's really, really hard for a politician to walk away who reveres the Senate, who has made the Senate their their life, and who is in the leadership slot that they've been seeking since they arrived in the body 30-some years ago. You mentioned in your piece that his wife, the former Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, has become even more protective of him. Um, in, in what ways? How so? Well, look, she's always somebody who has been uh, a fierce advocate for her husband. But now you see that in ways uh, that are are demonstrable just Mm. in her physical interaction with him in public, uh, helping him up. Uh, I was at a uh, a political picnic in western Kentucky, and every time McConnell stood – from his seat, she helped him up in part just to give him a hand, but in part to make sure that there was no incident that would again be captured by the cameras. Every time they're getting in and out of the car, she is at his side, making sure he's able to sort of make his way. And so she, she becomes sort of this almost sort of physical guardian of him uh, as he faces these physical challenges. Mm. Do you think, I hate to like talk about the politics of it, but it's mm. all about politics. Do, yes. do you think it, it, it it makes the Republican Party's argument against Biden weaker. Yeah. Do you know where I'm going well, with that? Well, it complicates it. There's no question about it. And this is a topic, Brian, on the minds of the sort of anti-McConnell wing of the Republican Party is, yeah, why should we have to defend this person who we don't even uh, have much regard for when he's obscuring one of our central arguments against Biden, which is staying too long, can't do the job anymore, and he's weak and feeble. Well, and the reality is some of these voices in the GOP, they're anti-McConnell voices to begin with, right? Yeah. Yes. And so they're already not fond of him. They're eager to see him go. They want someone who's more a pro-Trump figure leading Senate Republicans. But their criticism does get to the heart of uh, what is going to be a central line of attack next year for the Republican Party against President Biden, which is he's too old and he can't do the job anymore. And you know, this obviously, you know, McConnell's status does does complicate that line of attack. We're taping this on Wednesday afternoon and uh, McConnell held his weekly lunch with the GOP senators and his his weekly news conference. Now that the Capitol's back from August recess, no. uh, he said he has a clean bill of health. He said the only times he's ever frozen up or on camera. I mean, by the way, that's true. What a coincidence that the only times it's ever happened right. were when the cameras are running. But that's yeah. that's what he's uh, told his fellow senators. So right. there's the word. Um but going forward, you know, this is going to be a lingering issue, maybe more than a lingering issue. Yes. There's some succession conversations yes. for us to have. But, but first, let's get to Ukraine and policy. Much more with Jonathan Martin in just a moment. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. 
The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Hey, we're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter talking with Jonathan Martin of Politico, uh, affectionately known as J-Mart. Where did that <laughs> nickname come from? Brian, it was given to me by a colleague of mine when I worked at National Journal's Hotline, which some of your listeners will recall. Oh, I miss to- Hotline. Yeah. And uh, it stuck. All right. So, J-Mart, let's talk about McConnell in Ukraine. You described this as his last big battle. Is he... Winning? Is he losing? Is he somewhere in between? Well, he said this week, uh, you're borrowing the famous line that Margaret Thatcher used with George H.W. Bush, said now is not the time to go wobbly, uh, addressing his fellow Republicans in the Congress when it comes to helping fund the Ukrainian defense against Russia. Now, with NATO unified and Europe awakened from its defense holiday and starting to spend real money on our collective defense, it's certainly not the time to go wobbly. And so he's obviously doubling down. This again, this is why I wrote the piece. This is one of his last great battles politically. And so McConnell is going to, I think, uh, try to fight until the last dog dies to borrow another political phrase of recent vintage for the Ukrainians <laughs> and try to keep the funding flowing for Ukraine. Here's the challenge that the Ukrainians can find 70 votes in the Senate, probably more to keep the money going. The challenge Ukraine has, the challenge McConnell has, Brian, is trying to get the money out of the House because the House GOP is a lot Trumpier than the Senate GOP. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to, you know, keep sending money to Ukraine, that's something that Kevin McCarthy is going to have a challenge uh, doing in his house, especially uh, as we get closer to the 24 election and it becomes clearer and clearer that Trump is the front runner. Hmm. On Twitter, you described this as the Mitch Kevin showdown that is now yes. upon us. What's the relationship like between the two men, if there is much of a relationship at all? Yeah, they're different generations, very different backgrounds, obviously different uh, approaches to to issues. And McConnell is just much more grounded in kind of the Reaganite tradition of a strong national defense. And, and McCarthy, uh, you know, if you put him on true serum, would probably uh, voice similar sentiments. But he's just not nearly as anchored in, in any kind of philosophy uh, as mm-hmm. McConnell is. And, and, you know, is most concerned about retaining his position in the face of a lot of far right uh, criticism. And so the relationship is cordial enough, but they're just it's Mars and Venus, given their backgrounds and given more to the point what they're dealing with in their caucuses. Mm. It's, it's a generational issues is a, is a big you know theme here. McConnell's been in the Senate since, what, 1985? So before yes. the fall of the Soviet Union. Right. So that that sort of tells the whole story, just the timeline. 
Yeah. And I mean, look, McConnell's first big independent vote, to give you a sense of his age, was yeah. he opposed Reagan and voted to override Reagan's veto of sanctioning the apartheid regime in South Africa. So wow. McConnell goes back to the apartheid, the anti-apartheid movement in the mid 1980s to give you a sense of, of just how long he's been there for. Mm-hmm. And um he is a figure from that era shaped by the kind of Cold War, hardline, anti-Soviet, uh, pro-national defense and pro-U.S. intervention uh, policies uh, of the 1980s. That is still you know, in vogue in the Senate. But boy, in the House today, when it comes to projecting U.S. force abroad, especially in Europe, there is just much less of an appetite to do that, in part because they're Trumpier, because they just don't see uh, much of an appetite from their voters for for those kinds of policies. This is driven more by voters than by the leaders, right? That's absolutely right, that – these House members go home and they talk to their voters and their voters say things like, why are we sending X number of dollars to Ukraine when we have our own problems here on the American border? And fentanyl is coming across and jobs are leaving. And look, that's a pretty easy argument with, if you're a House member to, to grasp and to make yourself. And when, by the way, those voters are hearing similar arguments on, Brian, some of your favorite television shows. I was about to say. And and Tucker Carlson. By the way, you'll, yeah, I mean, a lot of those arguments come straight from Fox Primetime. And when I interviewed McConnell, the first words out of his mouth were invoking Tucker Carlson and what Tucker had done to criticize uh, McConnell on the Ukraine issue. So McConnell's conscious of this. Uh, Brian, you'll appreciate this. I had a House Republican tell me, back when Tucker was still on Fox, that Part of the challenge the House Republicans had was whenever Tucker would mention the Ukraine issue, that members of the House GOP, uh, their emails, their their voicemails in their office, uh, their mail would fill up mm. with, with you know angry missives about why are you funding Ukraine? Mm. And they respond to that because a lot of these House members, they don't have to worry about a general election. All they have to worry about is a primary. And if they're catching heat from the right on on Ukraine, boy, they're going to be awfully tempted uh, to run. So what are the arguments McConnell can make? What does he say to Republicans who are skeptical? Sure. Well, what McConnell does is a couple of things. First of all, he portrays Russia as an adversary uh, of the U.S., whose military we are significantly degrading without having to send a single American troop into combat. The other argument, Brian, that he makes, because he knows his party is much more focused on China than it is Russia, is if you want to send a message to China about American resolve, and if you want to project force uh, abroad and you know warn the Chinese about their own uh, interventionism uh, outside their 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 uh, their borders. Then we have to stand strong with the Ukrainians. To remind those who think we ought to be focusing on Asia, both the Prime Minister of Japan and the Defense Minister in Japan say the single most important thing we can do to push back against potential Chinese aggression is to help the Ukrainians defeat the Russians in this current conflict. President Xi is watching as this unfolds. So McConnell is smart about trying to link this uh, to the the, the China uh, matter, which is much more salient for the average House Republican. Mm. 
And how linked is this conversation uh, to Donald Trump? Because I think it's pretty linked, right? Trump is, is of course, central to this. Uh, Trump uh, is an isolationist. He has, uh, you know, little interest in alliances, was never a big fan of NATO, uh, in part because he thought the U.S. was was getting taken to the cleaners uh, in terms of our skin in the game financially versus the Europeans. And, you know, a lot of Republican voters have absorbed this, and therefore a lot of Republican lawmakers have absorbed this. And that moved the party center of gravity away from the kind of Reaganite, strong American footprint abroad type politics that that you and I uh, sort of grew up watching and covering. Trump's a huge factor in this. And this is, by the way, why I wrote that piece. It's kind of the one way that McConnell can do battle with Trump without oh. directly engaging Trump, which will obviously just without cause. saying Trump's name, without saying Trump's name. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, McConnell sort of was very clear to me in the interview that it's Trump who has kind of moved the party on national security. And he blames Trump for this. But, yeah, he's not going to go lash Trump on the floor of the Senate because he doesn't want to make this about him versus Trump. But make no mistake, this is McConnell's way of trying to combat Trumpism and what he feels uh, is really the most toxic element of Trumpism, which is America withdrawing and, and sort of not being the global force that it has been really since World War II. Do you have a sense of how McConnell feels about the 2024 field uh, beyond Trump? I mean, I saw you on Meet the yeah. Press a couple of weeks ago talking yeah. about, uh, I think it was Governor Burgum. You know, Burgum goes on Meet the Press, doesn't say anything new. Right. There's no, you said there's no creativity. Take yes. a risk. You know, what are y'all doing against Trump? Is that how McConnell feels as well? Like nobody is out there actually trying to slay the Trump beast in the GOP primary field? I think McConnell is sensitive to the challenge that his party has, which is you know, half or even more than half of their voters want to move on from Trump, but a lot of them don't want to move on from Trump. And they don't like it when you use the arguments against Trump that the left tends to use. I think McConnell is aware of how sticky this wicket is, that you got to be delicate in taking on Trump because of what he's done, frankly, to the rank and file of the party. It's Mm. hard to attack Trump frontally in a Republican primary. I think McConnell gets all of that. But sure, as a legislative tactician and somebody who has run and won a lot of campaigns in his life, in fact, he's never lost one, as he would happily remind you, I'm sure he's (laughs) frustrated that there's not somebody emerging against Trump, that there's not somebody who at this point has has really stepped up. He likes Tim Scott, uh, of course, the senator from South Carolina, who's the only GOP senator who ran this year, in part because I think a lot of them kind of knew it was not worth running with Trump still in the race. And Mm. I think if McConnell could wave a wand tomorrow, Brian, he'd make Tim Scott the party standard bearer. But obviously that's that's not viable. Mm -hmm. Always makes me think about January of 2021 and all these what ifs, what might have been, what could have happened. I mean, here's McConnell speaking on the floor, um, saying that Trump was practically responsible for the attack. There's no question, none, that President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. Well, McConnell gave that speech after voting to acquit Donald Trump in the impeachment trial in February of 2021. And this is one of the great what ifs in modern American history. What if McConnell, after January 6th, 
had rallied enough Senate Republicans to vote to convict Trump uh, in that second impeachment trial and then voted uh, to uh, render him ineligible to seek office again uh, in this country. Uh, it would have been difficult. There were seven Senate Republicans who voted uh, to convict. McConnell would have had to get nine more plus himself to get the needed two thirds to convict. I'm not saying it would have been a gimme, but he didn't put his shoulder to the wheel. He didn't try. And because of that, uh, he probably lost the best opportunity to finally, as you put it, slay the Trump beast. Because if they had convicted Trump, he would not have been able to run for office again in the future. Hmm. Why didn't he try? I think a couple of reasons. And uh, Alex Burns and I mentioned this in our book blog here. Uh, <laughs> New York Times bestseller. This uh, will not pass. This will not pass. Look, McConnell gauged where his conference was and realized he would have been in a distinct minority. And he didn't, as he said at the time, he didn't get to become Senate Republican leader by siding with a distinct minority in his conference. And McConnell knew that if he had voted to uh, convict, it would have been hard to uh, find uh, that many more who would have done the same. And I also think that McConnell was worried beyond his own politics of being in the minority of his conference on voting to convict, I think, Brian, he was worried about really alienating Trump and turning Trump into a wrecking ball who would have undermined the Republican prospects to retake the majority in 2022. And that irony of ironies uh, is exactly what happened. Trump st still was a wrecking ball in 2022, and he still undermined the Republicans' chance to take back the Senate. When I read This Will Not Pass, you know, the title to me is a, a statement, among other things, a statement about the fever in the Republican Party yes. and that it's not going to pass. And here we are in the fall of 2023 and it's not passed yet. And Trump remains the front runner of the Republican Party. So then let's talk about what a post McConnell GOP looks like. Uh, much more with Jonathan Martin in just a moment. Hey, if you're a fan of the show, we'd appreciate it if you leave us a rating and a review on the podcast app of your choice. And while you're there, hit the follow button so you don't miss an episode. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. And 
we're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter talking with Jonathan Martin about Mitch McConnell, the future of the Senate GOP, and the future of the GOP writ large. Because, you know, Jonathan, I think a lot of people wonder, some people root for a post-McConnell GOP. A number of senators came forward expressing a lot of concern after he froze up for a second time on camera. Now, McConnell this week is saying he is A-OK, clean bill of health, etc. But the junior senator from Kentucky, right, Rand Paul, does not seem convinced. Uh, other GOP senators seem concerned as well. To date, though, I have not heard anybody say he needs to step aside. Yes. And he certainly has shown no sign of doing so. So are we just going to be in this awkward dance for months or years to come? Well, I think that depends on McConnell's health. Look, if he forges ahead and there's no more significant public event raising questions about uh, his his health, I think he will be able to serve at least through the rest of this Congress. If he does have subsequent health issues, this is going to be a competitive race. And the three initial candidates are all named John, John Barrasso. Wyoming, John Cornyn, Texas, John Thune, South Dakota. Mm. Let's play that moment where he froze up a second time because he was being asked about his plans for re-election. What are my thoughts about what? Running for re-election in 2026. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? All right. I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. So the answer is no, probably not. (laughs) Do we know the answer? Oh, I'd be shocked if he ran for re-election in 26. Um, I think the question is more, is he going to serve out uh, this term through January of 27 than it is, is he going to run for re-election 26? But again. And the likely scenario is that he steps away from leadership at the end of 24 and takes on that Pelosi-like role, right? Yes. And by the way, uh, I've heard this for years now that that he would serve out the final two years of his Senate term in the rank and file and, and, and would, in fact, return to the Appropriations Committee and sort of use those final two years to steer some more projects back to Kentucky and also, you know, try to keep on promoting uh, the U.S. to t- take a forceful role in uh, world affairs. What is the Republican Party once McConnell is out of leadership? Well, he is the last bulwark, as I put it in my in my piece about him this summer, of the kind of pre-Trump GOP. He is the last leader uh, still in office from that kind of Reaganite party. Uh, Kim McCarthy uh, obviously is much more malleable and is trying to survive in a House GOP that has gotten really Trumpy and uh, it is a small majority and it's difficult. And if you look at the uh, the leadership of the Republican Party, Beyond Washington, Brian, it's you know much more from the kind of Trumpist wing than it is from the Reaganite wing. And um, it's hard to see how that gets reversed here anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as Trump himself, I mean, you know, that's an open question, right? If, if Trump loses the general election in 2024, is there then any kind of a reckoning in the party uh, about Trump himself and Trump's leadership role in the party? Uh, but as far as his influence and the kind of uh, policy platform and the kind of tenor, uh, it's really hard to see the party walking away from that. So we talked about the scenario where he becomes like a player coach and steps back and, and goes back to the Appropriations Committee. What about the scenario where he might have to suddenly resign for one reason or another? Yeah. What happens then? 
uh, if McConnell does have to resign or if there's a vacancy in that seat, uh, the state law in Kentucky is that the governor has to appoint a candidate who is proposed by the party of the, the senator from the vacated seat, which is a long way of saying McConnell wired his state legislator allies in Frankfurt uh, to change the law so that if he does have to vacate the seat, he'll be replaced by a Republican. Now, here's the kicker. The governor of Kentucky is a Democrat named Andy Bashir, and Andy Bashir does not want to be bound necessarily by this new law. He vetoed the bill, by the way, when it came to his desk. He was overridden. And so there's great questions in Kentucky, Brian, as to whether or not Bashir will kick this to the courts and try to appoint a Democrat if there is a vacancy uh, hmm. and, and, and see where it goes. I asked Bashir twice directly in an interview in Kentucky last month, will you follow this new state law? and appoint a Republican if there's a vacancy in the McConnell seat. And Brian, he twice dodged my question. Mm, right. Trump and McConnell, Biden and Chuck Schumer, all men of a certain age. So I, I'm wondering, Jonathan, you're up at Harvard uh, talking yeah. to students doing study groups at the Institute, yes. uh, Institute of Politics. What are you What are you going to tell them this semester about this generational divide in politics, about this I don't, I don't know if we can call it a transition moment because right. there's no transition happening yeah. <laughs> at the moment. Trump and Biden are the leading contenders for their party's right. nominations. But we are living under a gerontocracy. And I know 18, 20, 22-year-olds, uh, a lot of them not too happy about it. They're not. They don't want to see an 82-year-old incumbent president against you know a, a 78, 79-year-old uh, challenger. And um, I think it's puzzling. Especially for folks who are not super political, whether here uh, on a campus or even you know anywhere else in the country, is this really all we have? Are right. we really going to keep living with these folks who came of age uh, in the 1950s and 60s as we you know go further and further into the 2020s? Uh, but that is where we are today. I think that right now it's. It's unlikely that Biden will be dislodged from the Democratic nomination. And Trump obviously is in a very strong position himself right now. Uh, so I think this kind of status quo politics uh, is sort of what we're what we're in for now. But to borrow a phrase from one former Harvard professor, uh, Arthur Schlesinger, the future outwits all of our certitudes. So we shall see. <laughs> Perfect place for us to end the conversation. Jonathan Martin, thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> that was Jonathan Martin, Politics Bureau Chief for Politico and the co-author of This Will Not Pass. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Jake Loomis. And mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Seltzer. Thank you so much for listening this week and every week. Your feedback helps make the program better. So send me an email, bstelter at gmail.com with your thoughts and ideas for future episodes. You can also find me on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter. We'll be back next Thursday with more Inside the Hive. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton. 
or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.